with them because I knew the company. Yeah. I didn't have a contract. So shame on me. I learned from that experience. It was a $30,000 lesson. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. so much for doing this. Thanks, Aaron. I'm really excited to talk to you. And I think that a a starting place for an audience, whether they're just frankly not in IT or in an earlier stage of building a career or business, is to be helpful in articulating what Solutions for Networks does. It's a very good name. I really like, we've spoken in past episodes about a book, Hello, My Name is Awesome, and how the name of a business should really be indicative of the service that you're providing. And Solutions for Networks is about as on the nose as you can get. I want to get the story behind that. But to start things off in terms of the offerings that you're bringing to the market that you're providing for clients as it pertains to moving onto the cloud and helping them with all their kind of problems, how do you distill that for folks outside of the IT industry? So I'd say Solutions for Networks is sort of a boutique company as opposed to a complete solutions integrator that solves every problem. Yeah. So we focus primarily on data networks, wireless network security, and data center. So from a professional services perspective, we provide consulting on a, on a project basis, as well as what I'd call weird staff og. So we'll provide a senior resource for two days a week that We'll provide help from an integration perspective for a company, as well as if they're doing divestitures or acquiring companies to sort of be that lead, help educate the younger people that are being hired. And the advantage of hiring us versus hiring your own people is the kind of people we have working with us on our team are really senior. So in order to hire really senior people, you have to pay a lot of money. Yeah. And once people like our team get hired for a company, they do the cool project and then they want to leave because they don't want to keep the lights on. Yeah, there's right? the builders and the maintainers. Right. It's two very different roles. So we're sort of the builders. and But the nice thing about that is because of that, we've been able to come up with lots of projects and cool things over the 20 years. So. We have very, very nominal turnover because of that. We do a lot of training. A lot of companies don't do training. Usually if we see one problem in one company, it manifests itself somewhere else. And our focus is pretty much Cisco tainted projects and Palo Alto. That's the only companies we really sell equipment for and software. Gotcha. So when it comes to the cloud, We're doing the network security part of it. And the interesting thing that we've found over the last year, because we've expanded our cloud security practice, is the cloud providers do do the security in their data center. But getting from your premise to the data center, you're on your own. And if you buy the network security solution from the cloud providers, it's in average 40% more. So it's part of, you don't know what you don't know, Yeah. right? So part of our job is educating, but part of our job is to sort of be vendor agnostic. So we will say to a client, look, Cisco is not the right solution. So 
here's something that will work and here's who will suggest that you go to. So our team knows that if Palo Alto or Cisco are not the solutions, they're enabled to pretty much say either A, an option for them, or we can't help you and we move on. But that establishes credibility with our clients and that's why we have long-term clients. Makes sense. So what I'm hearing and I'm admittedly tremendously ignorant about like the just IT as a profession and as an industry. But what you're really saying is very similar to the notion of like a fractional CFO, where a startup that is maybe dealing with fundraising or complexity in payroll and debt and all these other things needs the savviness and the experience that is hard earned through perhaps decades of experience, but does not by any stretch of the imagination have the budget to keep someone on full-time, right. nor do they have the problems, like the deep bench of problems to be addressed that would require 40, 50, 60 hours a week. It really is that tactician, that expert being able to kind of parachute in a 5, 10, 15 hour per week capacity right. that can solve a lot of the problems. And that packaging makes a lot of sense for all the entities involved to have that be a valuable process. To, to your point, I'd say maybe not all, but most of our team would almost be like CPAs of networking. Yeah. So with all the certifications and all the training, probably minimum, minimum of 12 years experience on my team. Some have 20, 25 years. To, so. to that end, though, so, so something that as an outside observer, and, mm-hmm. and this could be completely incorrect, is that not that there aren't new technologies or abilities as it pertains to accounting and looking at your books, but from the person who's just seen the miniaturization of computers and the ubiquity of internet access all over the place, it seems like there's been so many turnovers in terms of the actual technology that's available that it, it, the notion of a single registration or a single mark that would be like, okay, check the box, this person knows what they're talking about, it isn't quite as applicable in IT because there's been so many evolutions to on-prem to the cloud and wired to Wi-Fi and so many other elements of that that I'm probably not even aware of. It seems like that in your industry in particular, that notion of that mark, I don't want to say means less, but isn't the most pertinent detail about someone's capacity to deliver. Yes and no, because you still, no matter what, whether it's centralized, decentralized, cloud or not, the fundamental networking tools and experience and knowledge is relevant, right? So you still need to know what a directory does and how it interfaces and where Microsoft plays and how you do the collaboration integration to the call centers and all that stuff. So whether it's in the cloud or on-premise or it's hybrid, you still need that fundamental information. But to your point, we probably spend a lot of money, like probably 70, 80,000 a year on training Yeah. because we can't be manufactured discontinued, right? Right. And that's really important. And we've lost a couple people over the years that that think they have all the knowledge and don't need to learn anything more. And that's the great part about being in this industry and the bad part. You can't sit still. You can't sit still. You have to keep learning. Totally. And I'd imagine that's where things were in the early days as you were starting Solutions for Networks. There was a degree to which you were kind of agitating for a pace or seeing an opportunity that other people weren't. Can you talk a little bit about like the founding story? So I worked for a, I worked for a bunch of networking companies. I worked for 
MCI when no one knew who they were, and Southern is S Sprint and Bell Pennsylvania and AT&T. And I left AT&T to work for a small company that I loved. In fact, I had the job before four months before I left AT&T. I'd still be there probably, except they got sold to a company that just culturally didn't work. In fact, the CEO ended up going to jail for stock manipulation Wow! <laughs> after I left. And, but the company that got sold that I worked for I loved and fundamentally thought it was a great company. So I modeled the company I started after that. Yeah. And pretty much progressed from that point. I had a pretty significant non-compete the first year, which I honored. And but because I had worked with some of the major companies in the city, like the Bear and Alcoa and PPG, they're still customers of ours today. Amazing. And that speaks to just kind of, this is a theme that I've touched on a bunch of different times, but this notion, I'm experiencing an era and a generation where doing something entrepreneurial, starting your own business is a lot cooler, is a lot more mainstream than it used to be necessarily. Yes. And because of the general excitement and enthusiasm for it, there's a, I would say at times missing of the playbook of what the kind of well-worn steps are to eventually setting off and doing your own thing. So number one, having a significant period of experience in the industry itself, working in other companies, large and small, and then also getting a playbook. You per perfectly articulated the whole thesis that I have, which is go work at a startup for a while. Understand Absolutely. startup pace, yep. startup structure, the kind of craziness wearing of all hats that has to go on in those early stages. And that will give you not just the skill set to eventually go off and do it on your own, but an actual taste of, do I want this? Because it isn't necessarily for everyone. There are always trade-offs regardless of where you end up. And you, your story articulates that beautifully. Well, you can probably relate to this too. The first year or two that I had the company, I was doing two jobs. I was working for a startup in Baltimore Monday through Thursday. And so was one of my first employee. He was helping build the data center for a startup called Tidepoint. They had, a it was great for cash flow. They had 120 people by the end of the first year. They had about 80% more people than they needed. The concept of the company was great, but they had too many people and they had funding and they ended up going bankrupt. Well, something they don't teach you is when a company goes bankrupt, they can go back, they can claw back 90 days. And if you've had preferential treatment for payment, they can make you pay. So our lawyer wow. basically said, well, you can either pay me and the com me and the debtors thirty thousand, or just write the check to the creditors for thirty thousand, which I did, because I had a handshake with them because I knew the company. Yeah, I didn't have a contract, so shame on me. I learned from that experience. It yes. was a thirty thousand dollar lesson, and the other unfortunate is it went back ninety days, and I was like day eighty nine, right? Yeah. But fast forward ten years later. We had a contract with a company of over a million dollars. Yeah. And it was with a company that got in big trouble for security, uh, security breach. And we got called in because we were sort of under the radar. We weren't a Deloitte. We weren't a national company. Yeah. And it was a regional company. But I, my gut said they were going to go bankrupt. So we had 30-day terms. We had our contract ironclad. 
day 29, I was calling saying, yeah. where's the money? Yeah. They paid us. Six months later, they went bankrupt. Yeah. So the good news is you always take, in life in general, but definitely as a business owner, the lessons you learn build upon each other as time goes on and you learn. And that story is so powerful because we, so my business partner, Hannah, who mm -hmm. you've met as yes. well, we have this thing that we always say to one another. And it's actually one of our principles now. We've codified it as one of the principles of Piper, which is trust your gut. And exactly what Absolutely. you said there, there was something off and what you were doing at maybe a subconscious level was pattern matching and kind of just disparities in what was said and what was seen and those type of reads that you were making. Right. But it's so easy for people to feel that and you can't necessarily put every word to it, but you felt it. Right. And you trusted yourself and your gut enough to act upon it in that way. And sometimes, unfortunately, we learn more from bad experiences than good. I, I don't know what that law is, but it, yeah. it's not a good one, but it is what it is. It is the law. And that's why, that's why there's no substitute for experiences because you had to take those lumps in order to be able to avoid right. them in the future. So let's talk a little bit about the positioning of the company because you said very early on and very explicitly, we're not a catch-all. We're not a throw absolutely anything at us mm -hmm. and we'll do it. We kind of have our specific services. We have our specific skill sets. And then another, maybe this isn't the right way to frame it, that can be concerning or constraining to an outsider or to someone without experience yep. to say, well, that means we're missing out on an opportunity and someone might ask for something. We're not going to be able to do it. Correct. But there's a power to knowing that you stand on a corner where you really have the expertise and the capability. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, for a couple of things. First of all, I've seen, we both know companies that pretty much will say, oh, you need us to build a pyramid? No problem. We'll yeah. do that like in the next three months, right? Yeah. But Nothing spreads like bad news. And once you do a project that does not turn out well, it unfortunately makes up sometimes for the 20 projects you've done great, right? Yeah. So we've turned down business and we've fired clients that culturally didn't work. Either their ma the management team and our team collided or... We're never going to say, okay, you think it's black, we think it's white. You want to do black, okay. But here's the caveats. We're not going to completely walk away. But when you're adamant about doing something and it's completely against our culture or having someone not take a vacation that's been planned for three months with one day notice, those kinds of things add up. And you're going to lose employees over that. Yeah. So you have to pick. And, and that's your competitive advantage. And sometimes you hear the thing, the customer is always right. The customer is not always right. It's just how it is. And I believe in that we've let go clients that were doing a half a million dollars with us. It was not an easy choice by any stretch of the imagination, but it was the right thing to do. And we made up for it, but it was a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah. I don't want you to share any names or specificities. Mm -hmm. But I've never had to, I've never let go of a client before. I'm sure a lot of people have not, or maybe if they have, it didn't necessarily go well. So not that it's ever a pleasant experience, but can you like walk us through the actual kind of just like blocking and tackling 101 of letting go a client like from, hey, we kind of got this like straw that broke the camel's back perhaps from a behavior standpoint to how that message gets delivered. So I'll tell you a funny one. Okay. Unfortunately, there's more than one. So one of our clients wasn't paying us to the tune of 200 and some days not paying us. 
hmm. a considerable amount of money, over 300000 right? It's a lot of money. Yeah. The good news is it was professional services, not equipment, which is another extra nuance because equipment payments are due quicker through a distributor than professional services. But I found out this client took glee in not paying their suppliers. So thank you, Pittsburgh Technology Council. I happened to be at one of the CIO award things and found the CIO that was responsible for this manager and approached them and was going to get a meeting with them thanks on to an introduction. Relationships still matter, right? Mm -hmm. And the next week I got a call yelling at me for going over the manager's head to the CIO. But I got paid. But the problem is I got paid and it was very painful. Yeah. And it wasn't something that was going to stop. It was some, the good news is we got paid. The bad news is it was just a recurring theme. You were pulling teeth and it wasn't right. as if the payment came. It's like, hey, this won't happen again. I'm so sorry. Right. I've seen the error of my ways. It was. Ugh. Right. Right. So, but it took probably a good year to get to that point. Because at the end of the day, we had been working with that client for 14 years. So it wasn't something that, and the people in general, other than this manager, were good to work, were good people. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, it was we didn't have a choice. It had to be done. It just had to be done. And they were having my employees work weird hours like 12 p.m. to or 12 a.m. to 8 a.m. That wasn't in the contract because they were a global company. And our team was doing it because we have a great team, right? Yeah. But they were abusing the team as well. So it was a com- combination of not being paid, working for someone that didn't respect what we were doing, and uh, quite frankly, abusing the team. So for all of those reasons, but it doesn't, it's painful and it takes months to sort of sort out and get through the process. And so is it something like the contract expires and we're like, just not even going to like offer a proposal or like, how does that get communicated? Because I'd imagine if to some degree IT services are like a mission critical component of a business, there's an, at least an ethical obligation that you might have to like, Hey, just so you know, like we're going to be done at this point in time. So make your appropriate arrangements because we, this just doesn't work. Yeah. We'll do knowledge transfer. We'll do anything else you need us to do. Correct. So that was part of the process too. But you know, it's another client that that happened to again, because of some, some disrespect and stuff. They had a whole management change and they've called us in the last two weeks to come back and do some work because we know their network and we're working with them for over 10 years. So yeah. so it works both ways. Certainly. It works both ways. Certainly. So let's talk a little bit about that team then and something like you making that hard decision. I guess maybe we can just start with like, how was that taken by the team? When you communicate that internally, like this decision has been made or we collaborated on the decision, like can you just talk about how you get that buy-in and coherence internally? Education is really big to me. I pretty much, when we're having issues, the team knows we're having issues. So it wasn't a surprise yeah. when it, when it, by the time it happened, but the team members that were working with this client were a little upset because they enjoyed working with the people there, right? Yeah. So they felt that they were letting them down, right? Yeah. And so that took some working, working through too, because they felt 
an allegiance to the client, not necessarily the manager, right? But the the people, because they had worked with them for probably five or six years. So that was hard. That was hard. So, but being open in communication and you know, it's not like, oh, by the way, we're not working with this client tomorrow, right? It happened over almost a year of time of this is not acceptable. This You can't be working all of these hours. It's not good for your health. All that stuff yeah. that plays into it. Right. So taking things back a little bit to the start, the experience, the kind of ability to get it going because of the relationships and the experience that you had in town. There's also a degree to which, whether it's just calling on that expertise and knowing what to do with some of these fractional talents you have, but also just the nature of you're in it every day, either executing for clients or reading the appropriate trade journals, getting that information on where the innovations are, or just even a relationship with a company like Cisco that are kind of communicating through you like, hey, this is what we're developing and why and how it all works. Can you just talk a little bit about where the needs of your clients have evolved in terms of like this transition maybe into the cloud or transition to some of these things that, have, that, that you have had your hands in? What are the things that are being asked for now that weren't ever asked for even a decade ago? Well, back up for one moment. So the cloud's interesting yeah. because a lot of people have, tra- so we've seen it over the last three, four, five years, transitioning a lot in the cloud. But what's happening is we're seeing some of the larger companies bring back stuff to on-premise yeah. because they're putting all the stuff in the cloud and you pay as you go. Yep. So they're getting the bills six, 12, 18 months later and going, oh no, we didn't think we'd be paying that much, yeah. right? So all of a sudden, they're doing the ROI and going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So all of a sudden, they're bringing back stuff that was in the cloud, sort of like centralized, decentralized of 20 years ago, right? So it's almost like history repeats itself yeah. in a weird way, right? Yeah. But what we are seeing is a lot of the, a lot more, it's not just the IT people. It's now all the other, because it is more decentralized and you have all the business units doing their own things, right? So you have a lot more players, for lack of a better word, making decisions and doing things that the IT group might not necessarily even know about. So sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But human resources, they, they could be doing something with their databases for resumes, but they want to do something on site or deal with companies in China and Europe to find new people to hire. But there's an extra level of security. There's extra constraints and stuff that they don't necessarily know about, but they need to. So sometimes it's just working with the different business units rather than IT per se. So that's been a change. So it isn't as centric to the CIOIT group. And it is a lot more, not hand-to-hand combat, but it, there's not a lot of long-term planning. There used to be a lot more long-term, one, two, three-year planning. There isn't as much planning as there used to be. Why, why do you think that is? Because everybody wants it yesterday. Yeah. And in general, people aren't staying in the same roles. So you don't have people that are 30-year employees, right? Right. You have employees that pretty much 
are changing jo- roles and jobs every one, two, three years max, right? In general. So they're in it for what are, what am I doing in the next 12 months? Not necessarily even thinking, what am I doing three years from now, right? Yeah. So we have a client that had outsourced everything, and we see it as an 18-month evolution. So you outsource everything, and about 18 months later, you figure, oh, I shouldn't have outsourced everything. But by that time, you've let all your good people go. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the fact of finding people, which everybody's having issues finding, you got that issue, let alone the fact of bringing all the stuff back in. But what happened is you had someone that headed up IT, outsourced everything. They're now gone. The new person comes in and goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're spending all this money with this outsourcing vendor. Yikes. We could be doing it in-house for 30, 40, 50% less, right? Yeah. But they're looking at it for sort of getting their gold star to move on to the next job too, right? Yeah, everyone wants to make a shakeup in a short time window to prove their impact and build their own. Right, so so that's changed a lot in the last 20 years. Yeah, so I'm so fascinated by that. With some of the businesses that we talk with, like the through line of the ones that really grow, that really do well, really is that retention of talent, the full team, not some singular visionary iconic leader. That's you need to have a good leader that's a part of it. Absolutely. We talked with a third-party logistics provider, and they have these customer service professionals that have all been there for a decade. And you have a technology firm where it's the same core team, and then every time they spin out a new company, they bring in like the same 50 people because everyone just knows the playbook and they have that experience together. And what I'm always curious about, because that's something I aspire to for, for yeah. my own business, yeah. is the there has to be a blending yes. between the culture and well you just said yes so what are you saying yes to because i think you're anticipating no 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 because you want innovation and new ideas and new thoughts and new clients and new right yeah but you want the foundation of how you built the company to be maintained yeah and like like you you said in the beginning and the ethical stuff that drives why you're doing it to begin with so there's a fine line and we spend a lot of time when we do interviews. Like we interview with five of our, like probably five of our team interviews the person we're going to hire because number one, while they may be doing a project alone, no one knows everything. So sooner or later, they have to engage with the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. And if they don't all play well together, it's not going to work. When there's five interviews like that, do you is it like I don't know what the term is like a single point of failure like if one person could just nix it is that how you yep yeah I like that and it's not necessarily all techy techy although technical stuff is part of it yeah but we all know people that think they know everything and don't need any help and can do it all themselves and that's good but they don't work for us yeah. <laughs> but. Some companies want those types of people. Yeah. But you hear the adage, hire slow, fire fast, easier said than done. But but we try to do that. We try to do that. Building off of that, the folks that come in, and there's like data and surveys about this, but I, for me, the anecdotes and the stories are helpful just to kind of contextualize things, is when you have those people that you know are worth keeping around, that you want to keep around, you never bat a thousand. But in, order, in, in the hopes of batting the highest percentage, 
there's a culture component, which is, hey, you're a dad and you need to be home by 5.30 or whatever every night to see your kids and do whatever. Or the other things that might be relevant to that person as a human. And then there's also just kind of incentives and structures where you can look all the way up to the leadership cycle of some of these larger organizations. And when they're evaluated on a quarterly basis or on some sort of short-term basis, it's very easy to understand how that short-term thinking kind of just pervades downward throughout the entirety of the organization. So how do you think about that in your own company, the balancing of those two, and then maybe more if you can share some of the kind of ways you think about incentives to get everyone thinking in that long-term way for your own business? So first of all, coming from a large company, in a large company, you sort of have a perceived infrastructure of support and all that happy stuff, right? So going to a small company for a lot of people is a risk, right? So especially when you're starting out. Of course. So, and especially for families, when you go home and say, hey, I'm going to work for this company that has five people. It's like, really? Right? And you've worked for for PNC, right? Yeah. So we do a couple of things. First of all, if the company does well, everybody does well. So we bonus on the results of the company. And I'm proud to say every year, every year since we started the company, we've given a bonus. Except for 2008. But I'm proud to say in 2008, we didn't lay anyone out off or anything and didn't lower anyone's salaries or anything else. But that 2008 was a really, really, really tough year for yeah. a lot of companies. Um, but we do that. If you have parent-teacher meetings or whatever, it works. It's a small company. You have the flexibility. If, you know, you have the opportunity to work at home, if your kids are off sick, right, or it's in school, out of school day, whatever. Taking vacations is something that we really almost try to force because we do have a few folks that that like to work a lot, right? Yeah. But I think vacations are relevant, even if it's a stay vacation, right? Yeah. Just to get away and think about other things. And I think that helps. I think that helps the company in the long run, too. Certainly. We pay 100% benefits, including family. We started two years ago matching 401ks. So we're paying and providing, hopefully, an environment that makes it easier for our team not to have to worry about the small stuff, yeah. right? When I worked for AT&T, there was nothing worse. And every year, you, your health care would go up like you know, 200 bucks more, blah, blah, blah. And our team knows when they don't get a raise, it's because the healthcare went up 15 friggin' percent, right? Mm-hmm. So they know. And I, in general, we've done polls in the past. They value that the healthcare has a low deductible and everything else. And we've included them in the process, a few of them. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds like transparency is a part of that as well, where it's like you don't purport to be such a mind reader or an no. expert that you're like, I know what they want. No. Cookies in the break room or something like that. No, like I don't have kids. So we, when we do the healthcare stuff every year, we have a couple people that sort of vet what's going to happen, if we're going to stay with the existing or whatever, and, yeah. and sort of making sure there's the sanity check for the rest of the team. Because to your point, I don't know that stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, I know enough. Yeah. But. You know, when it comes to a family, it's more important and more critical for our team that has kids than it is for me. Makes sense. Michelle, I just like looked at the time and we've 
blown through my ent- entire allotment of, of time with you guys. This was awesome. I learned so much. I'm so grateful that you agreed to do this. Well, I'm so proud of what you've built already, too. Thank you. You and Hannah. Thank you. I want to make sure that everyone can connect and learn more about you guys. So what digital coordinates can we provide for people that want to learn more? So we have Twitter. The moniker is S, the letter S, the number four, N-E-T-S. For Twitter, that's our website too, sfernets.com. Yeah. And LinkedIn. So we have all those venues going. I think my team's starting Instagram, but it hasn't started yet. You got the account. We've, okay. we've already, already okay. posted on the story. So, well, well, good. So, And we're going to be starting to do some training and some videos. So that's a coming attraction in the next few months, but we haven't started doing that yet. So Awesome. So we're doing a much better job. Carrie, who you met, came on last year as a marketing guru for us. And we now have an intern for marketing, Lauren, and she's taken over sales. So she's been she's been a huge addition to the team. Right on. We're going to link all those accounts and the website in the show notes for this episode, goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast, or in the app. We are probably listening to this right now for every episode of the show. But as we do at the end of each interview, Michelle, I'm going to give you the mic one more time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Okay. So I would say that perception is not reality. And what I mean by that is you might be working with someone and they're just being, they're just in a rotten mood. Or you might meet someone and you think they are just because how they look, that they came from they made major means that they had an Aussie and Harriet family life and you never know the background of people. So don't necessarily assume that and don't take things personally. Someone might be having a bad day because their child has major health issues mm-hmm. that they're not necessarily going to share with you. Or someone might look like had everything handed to them and they were adopted, right? So don't assume necessarily when you meet someone that what is reality. Yeah. That large pattern matching is like a good base survival instinct. And back to trusting the gut, when it's overwhelming sense of dread around someone, you need to trust that. But at the lower levels, you need to be able to recognize, all right, I kind of jumped to a conclusion there. And, right. and, you know, that openness is where so much of the opportunity comes from. Yes. Beautiful. Michelle, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. We just went deep with Michelle McGuff. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you for watching all the way to the end of my interview with Michelle. I think that's one of the best interviews that I've had the pleasure to be a part of. It was mostly her experience, her candor, I want to know in the comments below what your favorite part was, what your biggest takeaway was, what was the learning that turned on a light bulb for you? 